You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, Ph.D., and our feminism, pop culture, and politics as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we will be talking about work. Work, 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 work. Work, 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 work. Mm-hmm. That's what you were referencing? Okay, yes, good. correct. So we're going to talk about work under late capitalism and all the things that go along with that. But first, hello, Melody. What is shaking with you? Hello. I'm shaking it out in Bismarck, North Dakota. What up? Neato. Yes, this is where my partner's family is from. So we're just here for a family visit. And that's about it. And then next week, not as comparable as Bismarck, but I am going to Sweden next week for a spring break, which I'm very excited for. Yeah, that is... Rad as fuck. Yeah. I didn't know that until a couple days ago when we were making cat sitting plans. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. When, what made you decide that? How long have you been planning it? That's just, what are you going to do? Well, it's uh, Dakota and my five year anniversary. And so we wanted to do Aww. a trip and we were thinking about going to Iceland. And then I realized that Sweden was like right next to Iceland. And I'm like, dude, if we're going to Iceland, I have to go to Sweden because I'm my, 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 on my mom's side, her yeah. maternal side of the family is from Sweden. So I was like, I have to go to Sweden. And then we kind of dropped the conversation because the flights were kind of expensive. And I guess one night, Dakota found super cheap plane tickets and didn't tell me and he just bought them. And then a couple of weeks Aww. later told me that he that we were going to Sweden. So that's amazing. Yeah, that'll be that'll be so, so cool. Yeah. So we got a very affordable Airbnb and we're just going to rent it a car, just low budget travel. But I mean, at the point when you're in Sweden, you don't need like you're in Sweden or you're in another country like you don't need a thousand dollars to have a good time because mm-hmm. you're mm-hmm. in a yeah. new place. So so. Walk- Just walking around will feel cool. Which I prefer to do anyways when I visit places. That's what I end up doing. It's like sitting in coffee shops and observing the culture. and That's amazing. And then just trying to, I feel like with this semester, it's like just trying to get it over with. Not in that it's a bad semester, but because we had school closed so many days, like the students aren't on a good workflow. Nobody's on a good workflow. So on the work side of things, it's just kind of we're just chugging along and trying to get it done. But yeah, I hear you. The Yeah, the snow days this semester has been pretty wacky um, in terms of that flow. I agree. What about you? Yeah. Well, since we last recorded, my mom came to town for the Oscars, as she always mm-hmm. does. And that was – it was a nice visit. And we enjoyed watching the Oscars and um, saw, like – I think, like, we fit in, like, three more movies the weekend she was here um, well, that we hadn't seen. So I saw Bohemian Rhapsody, Roma, and The Wife, which I hadn't seen um, prior to that. And, uh, yeah, just had another – lovely ritual Oscar night, which we always like. And my mom's doing well, which is um, hasn't always been the case uh, in the past few years. So I was glad that she's in good spirits and doing well. And I will be headed to Cleveland for spring break to finish my memoir because it is due at the end of the month. And so I figured since my memoir is about my life in Cleveland, that being in Cleveland would be a good a good place to be to, to try to wrap it up. And I'm going to do some sort of more exploring of some of the places I grew up around and like go to the historical society in, uh, in Cleveland. And also like the little, there's like a little museum in Valley View, which is like the town I grew up in and just going to do some sort of, you know, archival research of my own life where I grew up. So I'm Ooh, looking forward to it. Fun. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. So that's our update. That's our check-ins. We have kind of a nice transition update that kind of goes along with our with our topic of the week, um, which is about work. And do we want to draw? I don't even know how to enter into this. Where do where do we begin? We have an announcement. We decided we're not going to do the podcast anymore. I just tore the bandaid off. You did tear the bandaid off. I don't know how I else to tell people. I don't know. You know. Me. I know it's I true. Just say it. It's true, but you also like. I bet people are like Melody's probably just like ah. being sarcastic. <laughs> I'm actually um, no sarcasm. We no sarcasm. We met and we decided that we are going to cease production of Feminist Killjoys PhD soon, not immediately, but fairly soon. Yeah, we. So we are officially at the three year mark. We started in. I guess 2016 and in March. And so we like are officially at three years. We've put out 100 and this will be 115 episodes plus some bonus episodes 
it is a lot of work. We've talked about that before. And we, as we're going to talk about today, um, there's only so many hours in the day that, that you can do work, especially if you're not super compensated for it, which is fine. Like we, one of the reasons we wanted to do the show was to like make education and feminist analysis like accessible. So to me, it feels like it's okay that it's not making money. It just means that for two people that have to work and make money, it's, it's just not sustainable, you know, if and we just have sort of decided it's been a good run. We've said a lot of things. And we don't necessarily feel like we're saying a ton of new stuff. We are almost at 120 episodes. And when you look back, it's like a really it's a very large series package, if you will, of feminist um, academic work that we have put together. And there's only so much that we can bring to you all based on our positionality. Like we feel like it's a good, it's a complete series. Like we could always do more, mm-hmm. but like we're reaching the end where it's like, okay, well we've mm-hmm. talked about a lot of things in 120 episodes. And also I would say we were talking about this just like an industry standpoint from podcasting that a lot of podcasts now are going more towards like series and they will end even if they're mad popular. I was thinking about two dope Queens, for example, mm-hmm. they have ser- they have seasons and then they just stop. And so I think it would be, it's almost an unrealistic expectation that podcasters can put out this much material without getting paid. Like I'm, we say it a lot, but we're serious. Like we do not get any money for this. Like there is no money. There's a Patreon money coming in, but that covers the basics of equipment and hosting online and a little bit of labor, but like it's not anywhere near like even a part-time income for us. And it's just a lot, a lot of work. And it gets to the point where something that we have been very passionate about and we love is now becoming more of a chore And we don't like that feeling and we don't want it to feel like a chore and we don't want the quality to go down because of it. And so we're just we just thought like, well, it's probably a better idea if we just call it in a very positive way. Like it wasn't we we did not like we're not breaking up as friends. We didn't have a blowout fight where we're like, we're never going to talk to each other again. But we're trying to avoid that by like, you know, if it's not making us happy anymore, then we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. And I think it's worth saying in the nature of being transparent about like friendship and stuff we didn't have a blowout fight but we were starting to like get in like little arguments more regularly and uh, that to us became a sign that like it just wasn't it it also wasn't worth our friendship like it wasn't worth creating tension in between us right and so it was it's also good to know that yeah we worked through some stuff as friends too and yeah this is definitely not a friend breakup and Um, we can talk more about this during our last podcast episode we were planning on kind of getting more into the nitty-gritty of all this so it won't it won't be a mystery but for now that's what we will say yeah and we have we have a a really exciting interview for next week that we're super stoked about so definitely there's going to be at least two more and certainly probably a couple more after that but i'm guessing by summer we'll be will be out. So we love you. And I really like I don't want this sort of discussion about money and work, which again, is sort of this nice transition, like to reflect on like, we love our, our listeners, our community, we're so grateful for the people who have supported us on Patreon, we literally could not have done it without that, um, even though it didn't end up necessarily like actually sort of paying us, you helped support people we paid to do for their time to do interviews, especially people who didn't who aren't in salaried positions. Um, It paid for the hosting fees of the websites, equipment. We got new mics since we started as a podcast. I just don't want anybody to feel like we're complaining about our community. It's not about the community. It's more about our personal lives, our work lives, and the podcast industry, which we can dig into on the last episode. So in the words of Gwyneth Paltrow, we are consciously uncoupling. Um, do you know about that? Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, like an asterisk so, for like a whole episode on why Gwyneth Paltrow is problematic, yes. but I love that. <laughs> I do like, I do like that phrase that she has though. Me too. I, I think yeah. she, there's actually some therapist who invented it. She popularized it, but in, in like yes. pop culture, but so that's that. And Again, it is kind of a nice transition because we do want to talk about work today, which is actually has been a listener request in various comments. People have asked for us to talk more about work, jobs, labor, Marxists, like how to ground that sort of in Marxism. So um, this is a response to listener listener requests, and we hope that we can have a compelling discussion. I'm excited to talk about it. I think it can go, there's so much, there's so fucking much to say. And we did a little um, survey on Twitter that we got some responses about. And so I'm excited to dig in. 
where shall we begin with work, 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 work? We want to talk about the tension and the balance that people have to have when they choose jobs that are part of their passions, and also the kind of work that comes about from hobbies. And so, for example, if you're really good at making baby bibs and you make them for all your friends and they're like, you should sell them on Etsy, and then that becomes your job, right? So we're going to be talking about that. And I guess all of those things, all of those examples are examples of being under late capitalism. Is there a like an easy way to explain it? Well, we, I mean, we talked about this on the Mark Fisher I know, Realism but episode. just like as a um, refresher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. So I'm just yes. referencing that if people want to dig in more. I mean, I think most people conflate late capitalism with sort of starting from neoliberalism, a, a shift towards a pretty rigorous dismantling of social social safety net sort of policies towards privatization whether whether republican or democrat so that just becoming sort of the 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 lay of the land um, regardless of sort of liberal or conservative spectrum. And so all of this sort of market-driven private enterprise sort of solutions to societal problems um, has resulted in not only the sort of economic crisis of 2007-2008, but also what we are currently existing in, which is a, a, a job landscape that is the the likelihood of having a full-time salaried position is lower than it's ever been, I think, historically. And the the chances of having these sort of precarious, what, what we sort of refer to as precarious labor, so positions that have no security, no health benefits, no guarantee of longevity are sort of very, very normalized now. So that means freelance anything, adjunct labor, the, the what we call the gig economy, so like Uber, TaskRabbit, all those kinds of things and just all of these different kinds of industries that are creating positions that are meant to be part-time that they don't have to commit to and that they don't have to pay health benefits to. So we'll be talking about all of the things I mentioned under the guise of late capitalism, like Rachel just explained. And then also, Rachel, you want to talk a little bit about, I mean, you're kind of living some of this because you've shifted from having a full-time professor gig to doing more, a bunch of different, like what you just explained, like a bunch of different jobs. None of, not a lot of them offer health benefits. And so you're kind of living this shift yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and I am staying where I'm at. But I also see the breakdown of previous benefits that capitalism gave us, such as, you know, I should say, this is a, there's a giant asterisk to all of this, which is that forever and ever, people have not been able to maintain full-time jobs. Mm-hmm, they haven't mm-hmm. been able to get hired for full-time jobs because of discrimination. So right. all of that to say, within my current system, like just within full-time work, like the breaking down of unions and benefits and all that mm-hmm. stuff um, comes with it. So I'm still in like the what you would call the traditional workforce I guess, struggling along. Very lucky. I feel very lucky to have what I have, even though a lot of people would tell me that I have the right to have a better setup. But such is the millennial generation, I guess. It's just what we're used to. I mean, yeah, 100%. I mean, because, yeah, I mean, Mel, just like with the amount of like stewing I've done about academic labor positions, like you technically aren't secure. Like you do have to find out year to year. And you have to teach literally double the amount of classes to make the same or less yeah. than tenured professors who who are, you know, or tenured professors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so it's interesting just and I think there's there's something really lovely. And for to get through like our days, we have to not, you know, dwell yeah. in how how fucked we are um, compared to other people, sort of. So I, I appreciate that you're not playing self, yourself tiny violins about it. But you still deserve better as a as a worker. Yeah. You know? The only well, the thing I've said this on air multiple times. The thing that saves me is that I do have a, I do have a union, so right. I do have good work benefits. But that is not the norm for a lot of professors in academia. Right. Uh, so it could be yeah, it totally. could be worse. But the only reason I'm still where I'm at, and I say this to them, is the union. Like without the union, yeah. I don't know what I would. I'd probably be somewhere else. It's too precarious of a situation not being tenured. Okay, but so before we get into the, like, our personal stuff and some more, like, current events tie-ins, like, do you want to give some context about labor, like, bring in your Marxist theories and set the groundwork there? Yeah, I would like to, 
be, per request from listeners. Yeah. Like, yeah. And obviously there's like, there's so much to say. So I'm going to be literally just giving the tip of the iceberg. I've been interested in the ways that the like the radical left and the labor movement, whether they can, you know, who are both comprised of le- radical leftists and not radical leftists, think about work in terms of like in union or in like the union world, work is something you're very proud of. You have dignity in That's like part of the that's part of the rhetoric. It's part of the, the the strategy of vying for better benefits. So, you know, thinking about the dignity of cleaning hotels, for example, you know, thinking about the dignity of manual labor, like all of these things where work is like really valued. And then in other cases, you have a sort of like fuck work live, you know, indulge your actual life. And like, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't have to think about working as a form of dignity, because ultimately, the work is still for somebody else. And so ultimately, we're still all alienated from it, which is this term that we can get into about from Marx in in a moment. So I'm interested in those sort of on the left, those sort of contrasting viewpoints. When you actually like read Marx, he He's he's said different things over the course of his life, um, so that's also something important to note. But ultimately, Marx thinks work can be incredibly valuable and really good for, for humans, that it can be really, really good. It can bring a lot of personal fulfillment. However, because work is for the service, it, under capitalism, work is for the service of the boss and not the worker. And so because of that, work is not good. And the only way that work can be redeemed as good is if work is for sort of the common good, which is what, you know, communism and some iterations of socialism are proposing. You know, if if workers own the means of production, then they will have ownership and value related directly to the work that they're doing um, because they will be benefiting from it the same way that everybody else is versus doing work in which a boss benefits literally 99% gazillion more than you. That's my very exact percentage, 99% billion more than you do. But that's the sort of, you know, you make $10 an hour versus $9,000 an hour in some, you know, sort of CEO cases, whatever it is. That's sort of like the very, very basic um, version of that. This, This notion that your work isn't actually for you is sort of described as alienation. Marx has a bunch of different um, sort of theories on alienation, but ultimately alienation is this idea that you're removed from the value of, of, of what you're creating. He is, of course, writing in a time when he's doing a lot of analysis of sort of like factory work, right, where there's products being made. This theory, well, I think very helpful and very useful and, you know, has been the, the groundwork of the union movement in a lot of ways, is also going to get more complicated as we move into more sort of knowledge production jobs and tech and things like that. Now, another thing that's important for Marx to note about Marx is that he was very, very pro-tech and automation, basically like kind of pro-robots, because if work becomes efficient and we need less humans to do work, then humans can just do work that they want to do and also have leisure time that are that's completely unrelated to work at all. I think that point gets missed sometimes because the union movement is often very like, we cannot let the robots come in and take our jobs. Ultimately, his theory is pointing to this idea of work can become more efficient so that man, quote unquote, in parentheses, sick, you know, his using man and not being gender inclusive wouldn't have to wouldn't have to do that work and therefore they would have more time for leisure and doing the kind of quote unquote work that they actually like love and desire and want to do which would help their species essence which there's this german word which i'm not i maybe won't try to pronounce that he talks about with that so that's kind of a lot but i think that's a decent baseline to think about how sort of a marxist lens on the value of work. I guess I would say, well, can you say more about alienation? Because I think that's really interesting. Like how we're alienated from work now. So you were saying like how a lot of it was based around factories, but like how does this alienation theory play out today? Yeah. Do you have thoughts on that before I keep yammering? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I feel like when I was reading your thoughts on that in preparation for the episode, I was thinking about how we're obviously still alienated, alienated at our jobs. And I think it's because... Even at like I could you could apply this to McDonald's or if you worked on Wall Street, that the alienation comes in primarily when 
your work or your ideas or your, or your initiation of different projects or your initiatives to like start a new project, all of that stuff just isn't heard or is not it's not valued or honored. And I think a lot of us have bosses where we're like, are you kidding me? If you would just fix A, B, and C, this flow would work so much better or this problem would be solved. But the way that our system is set up is that the workers don't have much of a say or if they want to have a good image, the boss might say, oh, yes, please share that with me. But when when do they actually ever apply what you bring to the table? And so I think that's where the alienation comes from, is that when people actually want to put in a little bit more than just doing their day-to-day work, they actually want to help the company or the organization along, and they're stifled because of the boss, that's that's where I feel the most alienated. And it's like it's the boss is always the barrier because – 100%. You know, like workers get together and they have all these awesome ideas and then they're like, well, but Dean's the president. So dot, dot, dot. And then it just gets then you you can't actually move forward. I mean, you can move forward. It's just very it's a risk because of yeah the positions that we're we're in as workers. Totally. Yeah. I think ultimately at the end of the I mean, at the end of the day, the labor movement is not just trying to get this is a difference between sort of like liberal what some like anarchists call like business unions i think that's a little pejorative mm-hmm. but the sort of like in the system unions are like technically trying to like maintain worker power and workers are asking for like raises and help you know all the things that come along with working conditions that unions can do which is a lot of things however at the end of the day under capitalism it's exactly what you're describing. That boss is still going to have the power. Now, granted, I think there have of late been incredible shows of how even these sort of quote unquote sort of like mainstream unions are exerting power, including things like the teacher strike that just happened in California, the airline strike that I think and many other people are crediting with um, getting the uh, government shutdown unshut down. So there's still huge power in things like strikes, but that's because that's when workers are actually asserting their their power. However, I think as long as capitalism exists, you know, when workers don't actually have control over the means of production, which is the sort of vulgar way of saying it in Marxist terms, but you know, ultimately those teachers still don't have as much power as the principal, unless they do something like strike, which is great, but they're still not in these like day-to-day decision-making kind of things. So I'm just repeating what you're saying and agreeing with it. Thank you. And I would also like to echo a very famous labor quote about the 888 thing, like eight hours of work, eight hours of rest, eight hours to do what you will. I really like that mm-hmm. reminder when we get to start talking about how to balance work and life, because life should not always be work. And that I I always like that reminder. Yeah, I think we're in a place, and I think we talked about this maybe in the um, Generation Burnout article. Like, I think a lot of us don't even want eight hours. (laughs) Like, there's this weird shift to, like, wanting to work less, which is valid, 100%, but also, like, wanting to be able to survive or wanting to work differently, which is, I think, how we how the sort of gig economy gets away with being the gig economy because we millennials in particular are very trained and conditioned to work really hard all of the time, Mm -hmm. especially if we think that it's doing something that we, that we are passionate about, which is a hugely privileged position to be in. So this is, maybe this is a good time melody to bring up your critique of this notion of hustling, which I've used. And and I think you're rightfully calling me in on that. So do you want to talk about do you want to talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I mean, I guess the it lately I've been noticing or it's just been happening, I'd say a couple of years now, especially on social media. There's been a lot of people that are saying like they're hustling or they're doing their side hustles, which a lot of it is the gig economy that we talked about earlier. And I have always just kind of felt a little weird about that term and how it's used currently, because the way that I learned about the word hustle was often focused in black communities, working class, you know, often current, you know, defined as the inner city where people were hustling, like either hustling a drug deal or hustling just to get by, where hustling meant more like I can't live, I can't exist within the normative capitalistic system. So I have to hustle outside of it to get to survive. And then 
within this gig economy and especially online where people are selling, I don't want to say selling themselves like as in sex work, which would be totally fine, but kind of like, hi, I'm here. I can be your fitness coach or hi, I'm here. I can do your tarot online, you know, which is all that all of those things are fine, but those are often called hustles. And I just I just don't feel like it is a hustle because I was doing some reading about the term hustling, how it's used in our in our society. So you look at the definition and, you know, it's not about the definition. It's about how it's been used. And and when you hustle, it's often you're trying to survive when you're hustling as a white, let's just say a white woman who is in a middle class space or upper class space. You're not hustling because you're already invited into the system that allows you to make money and to succeed. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed a full-time job, as me and Rachel have been talking about. But at the same time, we don't face the same resistance as other people who are hustling, right? So I have a student who I will name E, and E is an African-American man, and he has to hustle because he has a disability. His demeanor is very not, it's very much not like white capitalism world, right? And so he doesn't seem to be hireable, like he cannot hold down a job. And so he he says he's hustling. And I feel like that is a hustle where he's going around, he's trying to pick up manual labor jobs, working at a temp agency, like that, that's what I understand hustling is. So when I hear, you know, people in the, I don't know what you call the like Instagram, like white lady. In, it's a little different than influencer. But yeah. I think everybody, I think everybody listening knows who you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's like, you're not really hustling because like you could disenfranchise by the system. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that critique. And I feel like it's, I mean, I definitely want to try to eliminate that from my vocabulary, because I think you're totally right. And uh, it, and it is different. There are nuances. It, it emerges from one of my one of a term that I learned at a, a labor training actually was um, is survival economy versus mm-hmm. like underground economy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, hustling on Instagram is different than survival economy hustling. I think that's an important distinction. And also, like, I think that it's a really good place to talk about a point that we can amplify solidarity because as more and more people experience the precariousness of work, Mm -hmm. there can be more sort of bridge building with people who, especially like young white millennials who thought they were going to have it. Okay. You know, go to college. I mean, this is, this is kind of me. I mean, even though I grew up with a little less money, I still assumed that I was going to you know, especially getting a fucking PhD, I was like, I'm going to make it like, I'm going to make bank, this is gonna be amazing. And when you're faced with like, oh, shit. So you know, and I had analysis of and solidarity with with other folks sort of before this, but for, for people who weren't thinking, I don't know, about labor issues, this can be an, an opportunity to be like, oh, yeah, living under capitalism fucking sucks. And I think we're that's what we're seeing. That's why Bernie Sanders has gotten the popularity he's gotten. That's why Teen Vogue publishes articles about overthrowing capitalism and so on. So I so I, it is picking up steam because so many people can can relate to this, even though it's different than hustling in the way that you're describing. Does that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think does that tie into that book that you were reading about Malcolm Harris, like yeah. about the millennials, like how our generation is different in terms totally. of totally. Yeah, I got this book that I've been wanting to read for a while, um, specifically for this episode by somebody named Malcolm Harris, who is a writer who Melody and I happen to have uh, let crash in our apartment many, many years ago when he was in town for a radical conference. So we knew him when he wrote a book called Kids These Days, The Making of Millennials. And he has a whole chapter on work that's, yeah, talking about exactly this and sort of his theory and analysis about the way that certain millennials were raised to be completely susceptible to this gig economy work and and also the disillusionment with it. So yeah, so I recommend that book. Okay, we gave some Marxist context. We talked about alienation. We talked about the gig economy and how that's sometimes conflated with hustling and it's not quite hustling because hustling is about disenfranchisement. And also there's moments and opportunities for solidarity. Should we shift into sort of our personal experiences with this, thoughts on this? I also do want to talk about Etsy. I really like your questions that you asked people, like the questions that we should consider when talking about Mm -hmm. this. I feel like we've laid some good groundwork. Yeah, so we can go to the questions. I asked three questions on Twitter. I also had them in our doc for us to be thinking about. And I specifically, they're specifically worded one because you can't 
write very much on Twitter. So that's one reason. But two, they're they're kind of not nuanced questions, but the answers that people were giving are nuanced. And that was that was my hope is that people would be like, well, it's not just one or the other. So the questions that I asked are, would you rather work a lot and make good money or work less and have more time? Second question, do you find it hard to tell the difference between your hobby, hobbies, and your job? And three, what makes you feel most alienated from your work, if anything? And we got a lot of different responses. And I'm interested in some of the themes that came up. There was a freelance writer, and she writes really rad shit. And she described not being alienated from her work because she works She works for the people that, you know, publish her pieces. But ultimately, like, it's on her own timeline and she gets to choose the pieces that she's writing about. She pitches these pieces and she really loves what she does. And so that was that that's an interesting perspective. And then there was a, lo- a number of people who responded that, you know, one person said, I know that what my company produces are completely unnecessary. And so that makes me feel alienated. And I'm you know, I know there's a lot of people that work for companies that they, you know, they don't, they don't care anything about. And so obviously that's going to feel alienating. So those are just a couple of responses. I'm curious, Mel, how how your reactions to these were very nuanced. So I'm, you want to do you want to talk about that? Sure. The first question about would I'd rather work a ton with a job I love? No, not even a job I love, but would I rather work a ton and make a ton of money or work less and have fun in the spare time? Right now, I'm actually. I kind of chose and then it was extended more than I wanted to. I chose the latter, which was to drop my pay so I could calm down a little bit because I was working too much and I was getting too wrapped up in my students' lives and I just needed a break. And it has been very nice because I've been able to spend more time with my nephews. I've been able to spend more time with my partner. There is some money stress, but I think my personal opinion for myself is that I can get by on $10,000 or $100,000. For me, what I need to work on, no matter what job I'm in, is my work-life balance. And so I don't really need – I'm not one of those people that – I don't have a life that's set up where like I need like a certain amount of money. Like I can can survive on on less if I need to. But at the same time, when you were asking those questions, and I think you had phrased it a little bit differently when we were prepping, like if you had to choose between a job that you – loved but had to work at all the time or, you know, had the opposite. I think it's still possible to have a job that you love, that you have good boundaries around. But I think it's when we love our job that we have a hard time creating boundaries because we love it so much. And sometimes, like, to be honest, sometimes that I can't wait to get home to do more work because I want to engage with my students' arguments or I want to do more research into what I'm writing about. But that's often at the detriment of somebody else, which we've talked about on the show before. I feel like the jobs that we love, we often overwork at, but you can have boundaries and still have a lot of spare time. It's just, I think it's harder than when you have a job that you hate and you have to be overworked. You know, it's a little bit easier to sign off for a little bit. So, and I know that this is this issue about not not just the the loving your job, but also the fact that you can take your computer everywhere, especially within the knowledge economy that we're now living within too. So I'm reading that book that Rachel got me for my birthday, How to Not Always Be Working by Marley Grace. And, and in it, one of the lines is just because your computer can go everywhere with you doesn't mean that you should take your work everywhere with you. And that's such a important, it's such an important reminder that because of our technology, we're now able to work from everywhere, where it wasn't that long ago where you couldn't take your desktop computer home with you from work. I mean, I appreciate everything you said, and I agree with it. And I just, this is where I think that I, I'm i I'm just in such a different place, yeah. because I, I think I would have been echoing everything you said mm-hmm. when I had a salaried position at my old school. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I started adjuncting, my relationship to work change to this thing that I thought that I loved changed dramatically. And so I've been interested in how even though I still technically love teaching, care about it, and I actually do love is a strong word. I really like academic research and I and I like theory and I like writing it. I don't have any at this point time or desire to do that to do the research academic research anymore because that's completely unpaid if you're if you're an adjunct it's it's expected of you if you have a salaried position in most cases but there's it makes absolutely no sense for me to do free labor for academic journals when I'm not getting paid 
by an institution to do it. So I don't do that anymore. But it's really sucked that taking a very severe pay cut and not only a severe pay cut, but to go from feeling respected (laughs) by an institution to feeling totally disrespected from an institution by an institution was really fucking hard on me. And, you know, obviously I was lucky enough to ever experience that ever as a white woman with a PhD, like all of those things highly noted. You know, I've talked a lot about, you know, thinking about my work compared to my mom's work and just how dramatically different it is. And, you know, so all of the notes about my privilege, 100% out there. Adjuncting has taken a real fucking toll on me. And I feel very fucking alienated, even from teaching, which is something I still love. So I'm in this very weird position where I kind of resent going to work every day, like literally every day. That's the worst Um, feeling. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it really sucks. And then when I'm in the classroom, physically in the classroom teaching, it really does kind of go away. Like, I'm Mm -hmm. like, I genuinely like this. I genuinely like these students. But I don't even like prepping anymore. I don't like great. I mean, I've never really liked grading. But I used to like, I would be kind of excited. You know, I would like tweet little sentences that made me excited that students were learning. And I just like, rarely have that enthusiasm about anything anymore. Mm -hmm. Because of the lack of I have no community at school. I have, you know, again, I get because we have a union, I get paid better than some adjuncts, but still certainly compared to what I know other people make doing exactly what I'm doing, not well. And so I feel really fucking alienated just from a basic level of like, I don't feel respected as a teacher or an academic anymore at all. Like nobody gives a shit about my research at that school, which is fine. Like there's a lot of value in teaching, but it's, it's been hard. And I'm like in an adjunct office and I used to have my own office and like all of those things are like, okay, cry me a river. Like you have to like, whatever, go to a nice school and Mm -hmm. sit in an office. Mm -hmm. Like I get it. And also the levels of alienation have significantly increased after the the money dropped and the sort of like respect and recognition dropped. Those are two things that are important to you, which money to survive and recognition for your work. And that's when I feel alienated from my work as well is when I don't I'm not appreciated for the labor that I put in. And I've weaseled my way into committees and things where I, I do I feel like I do have some respect, but at the end of the day, it's really easy for me to get resentful because it's like, yep, still a part-time person, still can't get a full load, you know, and they all say that all this stuff matters and or it adds to your, you know, to the at the end of the day, like how many credits you're going to get. And and it's not just me. It's like multiple people at our school that are not tenured. We've talked about this before, that it's like the non-tenured yeah. people that do the most work and are the most dedicated yeah. and are the often are younger as well in their careers and they get shit on and they're the ones that yeah. are putting in more effort. Yeah. And then the old white guys can just like sit there and age towards retirement and not do anything to change their workspace or their classrooms. Or people end up like me where I'm like, fine, if I'm going to feel this unhappy and this disrespected... I'm going to set, like, every fucking boundary that I know, and I'm going to do, like, mm-hmm. kind of the bare – I mean, I don't want to say the bare minimum because I do think in my teaching I – I don't think my teaching is the bare minimum, no. but – Your bare minimum but is some people's best teaching. That's incredibly kind. I appreciate that. Like, I'm setting – I just – somebody else on Twitter was asking if people have – academics have their school email on their phone – And I responded truthfully like I did when I was salaried, but I would never dream of having my school email on my phone right now. Mm. Never. Like I set real hard fucking boundaries about when I check my email. And but it's but it's a but what the the worst part of all this is, is like breaks my fucking heart that these labor conditions hurt the students. Right. I mean, I could be giving them more. Right. And but I'm not going to. Right. At this pay at this pay grade. And that really makes me angry at capitalism. <laughs> so – and it's the same thing with the with the teacher strike. Like a lot of the rhetoric of the teacher strike is um, treating teachers better helps them be better teachers for students. And even though teachers deserve good pay regardless of students, in my opinion, um, it's, it's a real thing. If you're overworked, if you have a ton of classes, I mean, this is the state of adjuncts. You know, you, you're, spread, you're spread too thin to really give – what students deserve. Meanwhile, administrate you know administrators make seventeen times as much as we do. So at least they can have their lake house. So I will Take say, that. do you want to? <laughs> I will say, like I have a lot of bitterness when I talk about this, but I actually like I've I've made a ton of peace with it, 
And I will say that it has been a true delight to make time for work that I care about, which at this point is writing my book, which I am te- I technically got like a, a tiny little baby advance that was not very much money at all. So I don't I don't really count that as like being paid right now. The fact that I've set really hard boundaries around school means that I make time for this creative project that I'm super fucking excited about. And I just feel like a lot happier. Like I feel very happy right now. This wouldn't and the so the so that's one thing. The other thing though is that this 100% wouldn't be possible if I didn't have a partner who helped pay my bills. I get to be happy with working less and making less and doing something I actually care about that isn't really connected to money. I mean, once the book starts selling, hopefully I'll make some some dollars, but it's not like it's a job with regular pay, but I love it. And so the only reason I get to indulge that is because I have the privilege of having a partner. So, but I do like working less for a boss and working more on something that feeds my soul. Mm-hmm. Shocker. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's really important. I'm just so tied to the capitalist system in terms of like going to a job and getting a regular salary, or even if it was a wage job, that this, you know, owning your own business or being an entrepreneur or doing like a collection of jobs to get by, it would it just scares me. And I know that you were anxious about it as well. I don't know if I could do it. But like you said, like you have Logan to help you if like if things got rough, you know, but that's uh, yeah. it's a brave move, even though a lot of people are just doing it because that's all they have. That's their only option. It's still a really brave move to to move away from like the hege- hegemonic work system, you know, that you have one job, you pay, you get paid by them and then you go home. You know, this like multiple job thing is it sounds really stressful. Yeah, I mean, it is. And also, you know, there's. I'm able, um, the only reason I'm able to feel the benefits of it is because I have, ultimately now I do have a safety net in a partner, Mm -hmm. which is not something I had in a parent, but Mm -hmm. I do in in a partner. So I want to totally own that, that privilege. Again, the whole point of this conversation sort of is like that it is the norm though now. Mm -hmm. Like I hear what you're saying that it sounds scary, but a lot of, a lot of people are just going to not have the option of of a sort of traditional full-time job. Even with a fucking PhD and being a white lady, I've applied to full-time jobs outside of academia, and I have not gotten one offer. I've, I've started applying right. for non-academic yeah. full-time jobs mm-hmm. in 2016 or 2017, and many, many, many applications, and I've never gotten an offer. So the, I couldn't – I don't even have – I haven't had the opportunity to even do a nine-to-five. So that's the other thing. It's like my choices right now are adjuncting, freelance writing – and teaching yoga, because those are the things that people have said okay to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to me, you know, they're like, okay, I will give you money for yeah, that. Yeah. And I hope people realize that just because you don't get an offer doesn't mean that you're not qualified or that you're not the best fit for jobs. Because both Rachel and I have gone through job situations where we found out like who got hired after, you know, why we weren't picked. And it's not because we didn't have the best grades or we didn't have the best interview. It's like something that has nothing to do with us. And sometimes that comes down to discrimination. And I'm not saying that about me or Rachel, but I've been on search committees as well. And you see how people talk about candidates for a job. And it's really eye-opening and really enlightening in terms of like, it doesn't make me feel, it gives me some boost of confidence because it's like, oh, okay, so I wasn't the stupid one or the one that wasn't qualified. It was because they wanted to pick the local guy because they thought the local guy would stick around more than me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So that has nothing. And yeah. you applied for jobs where I was like, you're a shoe in Like, how could anybody be better? And probably there was nobody better, but they picked somebody else for an unrelated reason. So, and I yeah. think that's so true. And that's why they say, I don't know, job job (laughs) careerists or whatever that say, you know, it's about your network. And it that is sometimes true, because it is it's not always who you know, but it doesn't hurt, you know, and then what that means, though, is that if it's about who you know, it's not it's not about what you do. Yeah. And white men 100% get get, uh, that's a good advantage they have often. Yeah, I just realized we had a whole nother segment and tie into this not segment, but a whole nother element of this that related to what Ivanka Trump just said, and also how that relates to discussions of universal basic income. Do you think we have time for that? Or do we need to like, Mm, shelve it? I think we got to shelve it. Okay, it's too that's a bummer. It's like a 20 minute conversation. It is a 20 minute conversation. I just want to say one thing, because we're not going to dig into it. But basically, I was going to say like, my answer to the question of like, the the whole question about hobbies and monetizing Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm. like, 
I've actually found a lot of enjoyment about pitching stories as a freelance writer. And like, I've started to enjoy this like notion of like building a brand as, you know, somebody who reads tarot and writes and like, can give, you know, talks like that's it's been kind of fun, like to be like, I love this stuff. I'm like, relatively good at some of this stuff. So like, pay me to be myself has been kind of fulfilling, but not when it feels like it's the only way I have to make money and live and survive, Mm -hmm. which relates to this notion of could people find value? Like, could people be able to do that kind of stuff? Like do what quote unquote, do what you love if there was universal basic income. So that was the other conversation we were going to have. There's some really valid critiques of universal basic income from the left that I think are really important. I'm sort of on the fence about what I think, but this notion that if we all I mean, the real, you know, my solution is like communism, then you could do, you know, do what you love and ha- and be able to live and survive. But this sort of like part of part of the Green New Deal that people are talking about includes this notion of universal basic income. So maybe we could talk about that on another episode. Yeah, I think um, it's a cool I didn't know much about it. So in prepping for this episode, it was really great learning more about it. And it, it's something that we're, we've been talking about in the or something that's been talked about in the news with AOC and Ivanka Trump. So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We can bring it back. Yeah. No promises, but... I was really scattered today because I think I just get excited and have a lot of thoughts about it, but... It's like teaching. It's like the more you prep, sometimes the best classes are the ones that you just show up for and wing it, you know? All of the things in our brains about capitalism got spewed out into a document, and then we somehow tried to get that all together for you. Hey, don't blame (laughs) us. (laughs) Um, We tried. That should be our new slogan. Don't blame us. We tried. <laughs> we tried. <laughs> That's like every white man's slogan. Yeah. <laughs> Don't blame me. I tried. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, lol. I just feel like as I just I am just offended by that statement because as a white man, I've really tried hard here to understand your standpoint. And I'm just confused by what you're saying. And... <laughs> What are you, are you reading or watching or listening to anything? I was just curious. I haven't really asked you that for a while. Yes. Well, aside from all the old Marx literature and Malcolm Harris's book, I am also reading simultaneously two memoirs, um, Whip Smart by Melissa Phoebos. I have to say I'm, I had high expectations and I was, I'm a little underwhelmed, but I, I like Melissa Phoebos as a, as a human from what I know about her. So um, shout out to queer sex workers, um, former sex workers. Uh, and then When They Call You a Terrorist, which is by the the three women who founded uh, Black Lives Matter. And it is beautiful and heavy. And so I'm moving through that one more slowly. Um, so those are the two memoirs I'm on my, on my bedside right now. I am watching... Uh, did all the Oscar movies that I just mentioned. And then I'm also just going to admit, as usual, that I am following The Bachelor again. And I'm. it's been very interesting this season. There's a huge theme about the fact that The Bachelor is a virgin. So there's been, in my opinion, a lot of interesting discourse around sex and sexuality that is emerging. Um, and, you know, I'm always just interested in all the dynamics that come up. There's one woman of color that's in the final three. And so there's always, you know things to think about with that because it's not a common thing unfortunately on the bachelor is the bachelor white? so watching the bachelor is a white guy has, the, has, like has there ever been a poc bachelor n- n- juan pablo is a light-skinned person but he i don't believe i don't remember where he's from so i don't want to mm-hmm. put my foot in my mouth but he was white passing um cool and other than that, I don't think so. And then Rachel mm-hmm. was the only black, was the only bachelorette of color, as far as I know. And then listening, uh, I've been back on a lady, Lam- old lady lamb. Lady lamb is an artist I really like. She has new stuff coming out, but I don't love the new stuff. So I'm listening to her old stuff. And so, yeah, I'll stick with that as my listening. What about you? I'm reading about copyright and YouTube and how YouTube is very egregiously taking has been taking down things on YouTube that are not copyright uh, violations, such as fair use things for educators, which really grinds my gears and my students are really upset about it, too. So I've been doing some research on that because they're really interested in it. And then I'm watching Russian Doll. I started it. Yay! It's really good. I really like it so far. I think we watched two or three episodes because they're shorter. 
I just really love Tasha Leone. And yeah, I don't know. I just like where it's going. I like it. I, it's dark. It's dark for me, but I'm I'm hanging in there because I love her. I just love her style of acting. Yeah. Just the just everything about it. It's a very cool, creative show. And then I've been uh, listening to, I made a pop punk playlist on Spotify for my nephew, Liam, who loves loud and fast music. And I asked my friend Casey to help me because he's in, he was in like hardcore bands and knows that genre. And so one of my favorites that I, that he suggested is set your goals. And you know who the, you, you know them, you know, set your goals. I love set your goals. I, I love that. Like it's totally my <laughs> jam. And I'm really sad that I didn't know about them. Like when were they big or. Like, um, I found out about them like my one of my last years in Chicago. Okay. Um, shout out to my friend Jacoby who listened to that kind of music and my friend Sam I think liked them too. Um, like straight edge hardcore kids. I don't know if they're straight edge mm-hmm. but two of my straight edge hardcore friends um, liked them. They're like so – it's just like so like white bro oh, punk music but like bubbly, I fucking love poppy, that shit. Posy. Yes. I love it. Yes. It's so – It's really oh, good. Oh, it's so good. That's like my version of pop music. Like people are like, I love Adele. It's like, I love set your goals. (laughs) (laughs) It is like the same mood. It's like, you're just so fucking happy. Um, That's cool. I didn't know you knew. It's like, I knew I slept on them once I heard them. I was like, where was I on this band? But anyways, they're great. They're great. They're really good. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody should. We don't do copyrighted outro music anymore. So you should go listen on your own. FKJ. Power. Okay, thanks. I will uh, talk to you Tuesday. Okay, love you. All right, love you, bye.